Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events. Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. We can't fix what's wrong if we can't talk about it. We can't move the conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. And unless we push the edges of what it means to connect, nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong. Every month, I invite a fabulous big thinking guest to join me to talk about what it means to be human together. We'll have deep conversations about the big stuff, life, love, and legacy, and how you can foster connection for yourself. Let's start to reconnect the world, one conversation at a time. The information on this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. If you want to integrate all the stuff that you have to do in your business so that you can focus on what you do best, Therapy Notes can help. They're a simple, secure EHR platform that helps therapists in private practice to manage notes, claims, schedules, share documents, and request signatures. Plus, you get great unlimited customer support whenever you need it. Over 60,000 mental health professionals use Therapy Notes. Get two months free by visiting therapynotes.com, then enter the promo code CONNECTFULNESS. Today, we're joined by John Eric Bauer. John is a scholar, a writer, and a teacher exploring the transformative possibilities of contemplative end-of-life care. A former professor of sociology in the U.S. and Germany, he now consults and offers workshops internationally on spiritual care, grief, and transformation, and contemplative learning. His book, Contemplative Caregiving, Finding Healing, Compassion, and Spiritual Growth Through End-of-Life Care, is an indispensable guide that offers encouragement on showing up to the fullness of life in whatever those circumstances may be. Contemplative caregiving shows how healing, compassion, and spiritual growth are available to us all in this lifetime right now. Dive in with us. This is an in-person interview today, and I'm sitting here with my friend, John Eric Bauer, and we have gotten to know each other through our children, through our daughters becoming friends at school. But I've also gotten to know your work. You've written an amazing book on contemplative caregiving and how we can find healing, compassion, and spiritual growth through end-of-life care. And I found that this book is more than about the end of life. It's also about how we can live our lives and how we can bring more compassion into our, our everyday which I find, relationally speaking, is perhaps one of the biggest challenges that we have as a human species, is to find more compassion and have that help us escape our own suffering, the suffering in our minds and our hearts, the stuff that keeps us trapped in our bodies and doesn't allow us to expand into our full potential. And you talk a lot about that journey, that spiritual journey through caregiving in this book. Um, I would love if you could 
say hello to our listeners and then um, share a little bit with us about your story and how this all began for you, because I know it wasn't one of those courses that that started like, this is what I'm going to do in my life. It was a much more organic, windy road. Thank you, Rebecca, for having me. And thank you for everyone who's listening. Um, Yeah, so my name is John uh, Bauer, and um, I'm honored to be talking today with you. Where to begin? So I'll begin with where I begin in, I guess there's two beginnings to the book. There's the beginning in the preface and the beginning in the introduction. (laughs) I'll begin with the introduction and then circle back to the to the preface. So in the introduction, I, I open with this, uh, my first stepping into hospice caregiving. For me, this was the beginning point of contemplative caregiving. And at the time, it was 1993. I was 24 years old. Um, I had no language to talk about what I was doing. Um, and I didn't have a, a full understanding of what I was doing. This was something that I, you know, I, I used the word organic, that, that feels right to me of over time, um, feeling into um, uh, the real possibilities that I was exploring through the work I was doing and just through the life I was living, I would say. And so this open encounter I give, I, well, first of all, I, I had this sense, I'd like to volunteer for hospice. And I'll talk some about that motivation. I'll circle back to the preface for that. And I showed up at this hospice in New Orleans. I was a graduate student in sociology at Tulane University. And there was no training so that's much different today. It's much different today. But there's no training. I met with a hospice social worker who, you know, for about two hours, talked with me about the history of the hospice movement and my motivations to want to volunteer. And then she set me loose. And so I showed up. I knocked at Jerome's door in his, you know, French Quarter apartment. Um, he comes to the door in his nightshirt and underwear. And he asked me, how do we do this? And I responded, I don't know. I've never done it before. And he, of course, responded, well, I don't know either. I've never died before. And that really, um, really was uh, an invitation. So I, I stepping in to cross that threshold into this unknown with this, so two mutually vulnerable human beings with a curiosity and willingness to, with Jerome, quite, quite playfully explore what was possible in that encounter, that space between us. So I feel really grateful that that there was some spark in me that was open that invited me to go there and really grateful that I encountered um, uh, Jerome who received me and uh, shepherded me in a sense, invited me to to cross that threshold with him. Such an openness. I'm just thinking there's such an openness in that space. There's such that invitation. It leads to... um, well, I mean, that's that's the spiritual work of joining with another. Yeah, and so um, I'll just speak some about, you know, I, I returned to Jerome later in the book where, uh, you know, a moment um, where I was confronted with a, my own growing edge of, of what it means to, to, to offer good care and to authentically be present. Um, but it was really a... a uh, one of then then uh, hundreds of people I've I've been with um, um, over the past twenty however many years now twenty six years I guess it's been of caring for folks at end of life where um, I've really got to Im- to embrace and apprehend my full hum- my humanity in that process and um, so your original question was to speak some about about my own spiritual story and so. The question could be, well, what, 
what led this, I would seem like a pretty unlikely an unlikely candidate to, to for this work. So here, this was the... Why, can you tell us a little bit, John, about why you, in particular, would seem like an unlikely candidate for this work? Well, I use the word seem, and things aren't always as they seem. <laughs> um, and... Um, well, this here was the height of the AIDS epidemic in, in New Orleans. And so there were, you know, I encountered a lot of, um, you know, other, a lot of gay men who were caring for, you know, their their members of their community who were dying. And here I was, a, a straight man. Um, um, so unlike if we think about caregiving, you know, uh, especially end-of-life caregiving, uh, you know, women's work um, and um and, and older women, retired women, perhaps women who've had a career in healthcare, something like this, that is sort of an image folks have of hospice for sure, and probably the, the a main demographic. Um, and yet, um, yeah, I had no upbringing as a caregiver. I wasn't trained. It wasn't something that I learned as a kid in any, any conscious way. Um, and yeah, so I'm putting in quotation marks, unlikely that there are no unlikely caregivers. So I um, did, never felt myself to be an unlikely caregiver. This was something I was simply drawn to do. But simply offering that, um, I've gotten that over the years, um, I'm such a great, you know, oh, you know, because I'm a guy that's doing this, you know, that's such a special thing. Or seems sort of surprising, oh, what made you start it in your 20s? That's, you know, sort of odd, that sort of thing. I don't think it's all that odd. I don't think it's all that odd that we human beings are drawn towards meaning and drawn towards connection drawn towards what we call spirituality, drawn towards a spiritual path. Yeah, yeah no, I, I think meaning and connection is, is the essence of, of what the human experience is. And so often we go through life uh, asleep or just kind of not aware of that component of our life. We're too busy in all these other places that don't matter half as much. But something happened to you before you became a hospice caregiver. And I'm curious if that, that something ties into this spiritual quest. Uh, thank you, Rebecca, of, of course. So I'll return then to the first line of the book, of the preface where I write, I would have, I would have never written this book if my mother hadn't been murdered. Yeah. And so I'll just speak first as, as um, to those who might consider buying this book, if that of that line, you know, I imagine that's going to draw people in or scare them away, and and my hope is that it would draw folks in. That uh, um, so, for me, so I was 18 years old, just two months shy of 19, when my mother was murdered. And what you were talking, what you just mentioned about going through life asleep, perhaps like most 18-year-olds, um, per perhaps I was certainly sleepwalking um, at the time. And I would say it's not that that the suffering, tremendous suffering, came into my, into my life, then I woke up, but what happened was, is that it jarred me. It, it shook me, um, not out of the sleepwalking, but it made me confront and see I couldn't hide anymore from the fact that I was sleepwalking. Um, and that's where the quest began of, of really the question of what am I, what are we humans doing on this planet? And, and being confronted um, with unspeakable grief um, I've would say I've come to part of the quest is finding a way to speak that grief and not just speak that grief, but to live it in a way that it's not just something that's done to us, um, but it is invites a creative response. 
um, which is uh, non-linear, non-rational, um, to use your word, organic. And so... Well, I'm, I'm just kind of wondering if you can also speak a little bit into the grief and the role of grief and suffering in our life. What you have found in your um, chaplaincy, in, in your research, in your just lived personal experience, um, grief has a spiritual undertone, doesn't it? It, it helps expose something that's really important in our lives. Yeah, I would say, um, I would take it a step further. So exposing something important in our life, I would say it exposes us to life, mm -hmm. right? It opens us to life. Um, so, you know, important starting point in talking about grief is talking about the language we, um, uh, we often use. And I'm, you know, I know that we get in trouble when we say we, so when I say we, I mean mainstream uh, uh, contemporary American culture, Western culture, medicalized culture, um, um, perhaps it's white culture I'm speaking of here, um, where um, a Protestant work ethic is applied to grief. So it could might be a contemporary white um, Western modern Christian culture perhaps. Um, and, and, I, and I say that as um, a, I'm just um, uh, there are many resources in Christianity for approaching grief contemplatively, and um, and that's part of what I'm trying to revive with this book is precisely that that lineage. But grief is being something that um, you know. If I just ask listeners now and even offer a brief pause and say, okay, when I offer the word grief, you know, what are some words that that come to your mind? Mm -hmm. So we relate to grief in what ways? Where what are we looking for with respect to grief? What does our culture offers us, offer us with respect to grief? You know, what is the path forward with respect to grief? And it's, you know, language like this, the, 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 of recovering from grief or getting over our grief and then even healing our grief, grief within that language of, of recovery, it's the, some sense that grief is somehow a wound and that we want to get it back to normal, right? So I've cut my arm and I've put the medicine on it and the bandage on it and I want it to be healed and ideally with no scar, right? Ideally it's back, it's healed and it's the way my arm used to be, right? And so that makes sense to talk about some wounds that way but grief as a kind of wounding, as a, a spiritual wounding, as a, a wounding that opens us to life, anyone who knows grief knows there is no going back. It's making me think, I think it's roomy, right? That the crack is where the light gets in. That um, grief is, it's another way to access the light that's within all of us, the life that's within all of us and bring us back to, um, bring us back in confrontation with our everyday. And when I say confrontation, I'm not speaking like in a, in a hostile way, but really just make us look at, look at what's in front of us and, and be present. And I'll, maybe I'll take that, I'll continue talking about grief and yeah. use that to jump into something that that this book offers. Yes. So it offers um, stories, so my own and the stories of you know, 75 hospice volunteers in the US and Germany that I've interviewed. Um, it offers you know, taking those, those stories, analyzing them and offering some, some teachings on end of life care. And it also offers some contemplations. Each chapter has a, a contemplative practice to invite us to, you know, to integrate, explore what these stories and teachings can mean for our own lives. And so one of the early contemplations is 
um, around grief, so around what I'm calling caregiving as spiritual practice, is asking the question, so here's the contemplation, is who would you be without your grief? So I'm just posing that to those who are listening. This is a question that I've often posed when I offer workshops or, or teachings. Who would you be without your grief? And <laughs> So I'll pose that to you, Rebecca, right now. You know, it's, it's so funny. I think my life is shaped by grief in so many different ways. I don't know who the heck I would be without my grief. I think my grief helps define my edges. It helps me figure out what's important and what matters. And... Um, and it's generational. It's passed down through the ancestors. It's lineage, right? There's, um, I mean, I, I grew up the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. I grew up, I grew up in a state of, you know, grief was all around. It was part of the stories that were told. It was why, why, you know, my generation mattered so much. It was what we could never forget. It was, you know, it, it's, uh, it's what makes it hard to look at the world today sometimes, right? So not sometimes it's what har- it's what makes it hard to look at the world today and i th- i think grief is is it's interesting i remember in my 20s my grandmother um had passed and i was in a philosophy and religion class somewhere in college and i wasn't even in my 20s i was so i must have been in my late teens and I was in a philosophy and religion class in college. And I remember being on the phone with my father and uh, having a conversation with him about good and bad, life and death, all the things. And it was a pivotal conversation in our relationship. And one in which I remember coming to, I, like I, I really remember the moment where in my mind something clicked. And there was this idea that like these things all go together. If we didn't have experiences to grieve over, then we wouldn't be able to recognize the other side and sit in the joy and the the celebration and the ease when it's present. And somehow it all made sense in that moment. So I'd like just to lift out a few things I heard and what you offered there. (laughs) So to the question, so when, um, who would you be without your grief? You don't know, okay? So it's, in other words, grief fundamentally shapes who we are. It's not like we're living our life and our life is, our experience are shaping us and we're directing our lives and grief is this inconvenience that disrupts our living and detracts from our living and we want to recover from it and get back to our life. No, grief, this is central to, this is the life we're living. This is, so in Buddhist language, this is the, you know, the 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 first of those noble truths is that life is suffering. So there's no getting around. There's no getting around it. You've also offered that it provides clarity. What really matters. So this sleepwalking and this opportunity we have. That suffering, grief, and just another word for suffering, right? A, a human response to suffering gives us this opportunity to wake up. And part of that waking up that I heard you say is is um, both direction in your own life and the capacity, the interest in, and the capacity to see how your own being is connected with the suffering of others. So in, in this case, the suffering of, of uh, past generations in your own family. So helping us to see ourselves as bigger than this small, this small little self yeah. 
that collects pe- pleasures and tries to avoid pain, including the pain of grief. Let me get past that and get, get back to living, having fun. So, It strikes me, as, as you're saying this, that a life that's just full of pleasure and that avoids pain is also somewhat of an empty life. That if we're just collecting pleasures... It there. Maybe we need that pain because I'm just going to go off on a tangent here for a second. We'll bring us back, I'm sure. But those pleasures fill the wounds. They fill the holes, right? It's, it's, um, well, there's this amazing exercise I once did with one of my teachers where we, we went into a trance state and we pulled out a lot of daggers. We pulled out the stuff that was hurting us that we wanted to release and let go of, but we had to fill those holes with something else. And it strikes me as we're talking about grief and we're talking about pain and we're talking about pleasure that the pleasure needs a place to land and our capacity for where that pleasure lands, our capacity to understand the pleasure and for it to mean something more than just a collection of trophies on a collecting dust somewhere is framed by the grief that creates the container to hold the pleasure. So as you're speaking, I'm I'm hearing um, both now and, and earlier hearing different voices in the book these folks I've I've listened to and so I want to to offer some of these little snippets of these stories and show how it connects um, and and I might um, so and to begin with simply offer up um, well often when when um, when I'm, folks I've interviewed who are volunteering for hospice they'll so many people said something like this like when you know getting at the withdrawals you know withdrawals you to this work and the fact that I'm a fellow hospice volunteer helps the person feel at ease. They just sort of tell, you know, tell. There's a sense of rapport there. And then they'll start, you know, and they're describing, well, it's fun. I show up at the nursing home or I show up at the hospital or at the hospice or I go into the person's home and, and it's really fun. And then they'll stop themselves and they'll say, no, it's, no, it's not, it's not. They'll censor themselves. It's not fun. That's not the right word. And I'll say, it sounds like it is the right word. It sounds like it is the right word. And so... So what I want to, what I'm hearing when you're talking about this, you know, collecting pleasures, this sort of acquisitive, you know, acquisitive, um, this materialistic approach to life that Western, much of contemporary Western culture offers is, this is the good life, you know, the so-called American dream, which I believe is turning out to be a nightmare, and not just because it's not of, of the inequality that's not available to everyone. It's a nightmare because it's destroying our earth and it's and it leads to dis- ultimate dissatisfaction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, so the 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 fun that we're told, right? We're told is fun. I'm talking about what in in, in many con- folks in in contemplative space would call contentment, yeah. right? Or what we might call joy, right? Where there or meaning, right? And so um, so if we just digress for a minute, now I'll, I'll put on my my academic sociologist hat that looking at the um, uh, quality of life, so 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 uh, finding out uh, measures of of folks' understanding of what gives to quality of life, um, having lots of stuff and having lots of pleasures isn't really it. It's really the meaning, and so so folks who um, are able to um, take the suffering of their life and 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 um, 
mine it, you know, mine it and, and explore it with, a, with meaning, that's really where the joy comes from. Engaging in activities and practices that cultivate meaning and a sense of connectedness, that's the happiness of, of life. So, so, um, so I just want to like, just I'm speaking back to contemporary culture. When we hear these messages of what, you know, what the good life is, and the, the good life being having fun, I, I love having fun, I, you know, so there, this isn't like a dark space I'm in and it's like, where do we find that fun? Well, it strikes me that so much of that fun that I am making air quotes when I say fun that we're talking about is often stuff that is about connectedness. It's about, um, it's about being connected with others. It's about intimacy. It's about relationships, right? And it also strikes me that in this contemporary culture, this, this space that we are all living in right now in society, disconnection is really rampant. We're overconnected to technology, to devices, and we're less connected to each other. We make a whole lot less eye contact. We don't spend intimate moments actually sitting and looking at each other and having conversations so much these days. Um, and it's not what we're teaching our children anymore. We're teaching, we're giving, we're putting devices in their hands for the most part, and we're teaching them to, to interact with the world through technology instead of interacting with the world through their hearts and their eyes and their souls. And I think in many ways, this is what grief brings us back to. It brings us back to this need to be intimate, to be seen, to, um, to see ourselves and to see ourselves through another's eyes. Yeah. So, um, so returning to grief, we're, you know, grief is what? Grief is simply a, a, a it's a response to a, to a broken bond, right? Would be a, the, sort of the broadest definition. And I would often say it's a, it's a human response, yet, yet I don't think it's just animal, humans, the human animal that, that, uh, that forms bonds and grieves. I think, I think geese, <laughs> octopi, octopuses, <laughs> I, <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think geese mate for life, but um, in any in any case, having a, a so there's a broken bond, and so so and here we are living in in a world where with the truth of impermanence, yeah. right? And so so there's no getting around the the, the grief that we're going to have these broken bonds. Where that broken bond be that it could be something that's joyful. That I uh, um, you were speaking of kids. So on the last day of school. So I'm taking our, our um, Lena to school, and we're driving in that morning to school. She says, "I'll just remind. It's the last day of school," and she's like so excited that, and use the language, "I'll be free," right? She'll be free. Okay, so just imagining the summer and wanting to go swimming every day, and just all this good stuff. And then when I picked her up from school, she was she was she was on the verge of tears. Okay. And so it's, it's what, what um, um, it is this cycle of life, right? So here, there, and there's these spaces where we have these natural cycles of life. Schooling is a, is a beautiful place. So as a, as a um, you know, the, 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 the school year, it just gives us these cycles of, of life, opportunities to, to see the freshness of, in September of a new beginning, a new set of friends and new possibilities, and then it's, it's gonna come to an end. It's going to dissolve. Something new can form. You know, um, but that that I think is when we to get it back to the to the fun, right? To the em- the emptiness of contemporary culture, I think is these cycles, natural cycles of of birth 
and death and new possibilities. I think that's the disconnection. That's that for me when you speak about connectedness, that is really that connection where I think is the is where we have a distorted sense of what fun is. So so it's sort of like wanting to if I don't understand that something is going to end, well, I could just keep stuffing the chocolate in my mouth. And at some point, that next bite of chocolate ceases to be fun. It actually ceases, like physiologically, be pleasure. It's actually become sickening, right. right? And so we see this folks drinking themselves until they puke, right? So we see this, and that's not even a, a, a I'm saying that's a problem of alcohol. That's a problem of a disconnection, <laughs> a misunderstanding that there's impermanence, that at some point this needs to end. And and uh, um, or it will be sickening, and so so end of life caregiving. It is a it is just one of many spaces that invite us quite easily in this case, I think, to see these natural cycles of life. So when I began step through that threshold with Jerome, both he and I were aware that this relationship that we were entering was going to end, mm-hmm. and in this case, it ended in about three months. And so can I open with my eyes wide open that what I'm experiencing right now is going to end. This little girl is going to, I would hope, at some point move out of the house, Mm -hmm. right? And at some point even, hopefully, I will go before her. Hopefully she will bury me or cremate me, (laughs) as it will. But at some point, that bond is going to be released in some way that we understand. That release is so important. You know, um, Dr. Estes, who's one of my teachers, she talks very much in all the ways of a cycle of life, death, life, that um, even throughout our lives, throughout our days, within our dreams, that everywhere that we look, there's this cycle and these different parts, life, death, life, they need each other. That things sometimes have to die in order to make space for something new. Um, whether that be visions or dreams or ideas or a project that we're working on, that there there needs to be the death of 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 things. Um, it's part of the natural order and it's part of the cycles of the way that um, that we walk this earth. And it strikes me, you know, I early in my career. Uh, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, John, but early in my career, I um, started working. Um, in oncology, I started working a lot with end of life um, and with living with illness. And um, part of the reason I got into that work was because I had lost um, both of my father's parents and my father um, early in my in my early twenties and late teens. And uh, I was very much seeking seeking answers about life. And what I learned in that work is that. Again, there was that frame. And I think this is very much what you present in your book as well, that there's this frame that shows up when we're working with people who are at the end of life or looking at their life in a renewed way that helps us see our own lives. There's a reciprocity, there's a gift in the caring for others. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit. And I think this relates relates very much into the principles that you talk about within your book. So the reciprocity of care um, is what I call that. And I guess there's several ways of, of jumping in on that. And um, as I'm 
imagining it. I'm also hearing there's so many stories that that are bubbling up that I that I want to offer. Um, and if you may indulge me, can I offer can I can I offer one that's that's um, that's that that can take us into that. I think it's a, actually a good move into the, into the. Uh, I'll trust that it's a good move into the reciprocity of care. So many of the people that I interviewed in the, in, in the book, um, you know, what you know, what drew them, you know, what draw what drew them, what draws us to suffering, to want to to um, you know be of of service in the world. Often it is stories like you just offered that you know of, I lost my mom, lost my brother, whatever. And there's various pathways through there through that grief. So it might be that I'm just confronted with with suffering, and, that, and I and I see the need. It might be that I'm that in caring for my brother as he was dying, I discovered my own capacity to care that I didn't know existed. So so there's all these possibilities that grief creates these creative spaces in us for healing. So this woman I was speaking of, this 42-year-old uh, therapist in Berlin, Germany, who offers that, quote, I've had the good fortune to this point in my life to have never lost someone close to me, parents, siblings, children. I've never been emotionally undone by grief. And so um, she described it as being completely uncharted territory for her. And so in listening to this, it's like I'm, you know, we think of someone has, you know, you've lost someone in your life as that being an, an unfortunate thing. And of course, it, it, this is no sugarcoating here. Of course it is. Of course it is. And here she is realizing at midlife that she's missing something. She's realizing that she can't just keep putting the chocolate in, right? That at some point, the, the swimming along is going to end, that she's going to lose people she loved. And so she actually turned to end-of-life care, not with the delusion that it would prepare her and she wouldn't grieve when she did experience losses in her personal life, but just that somehow she wanted to. There's that turning around that Plato talked about, that, that, that uh, most philosophers and, and uh, spiritual folks talk about of, of, turn, of turning, turning around, wanting to illuminate, um, in this case, the, um, the centrality of grief to a life well lived, right? So, so, um, so in terms of your, your question of the reciprocity of care, yeah. right? So there is, um, there is no giving without receiving. It just can't be that way. That, that here I met Jerome and he invited me in and if the, and it was that mutual vulnerability that allowed for for a um, dignity to be possible and we speak of death with dignity and and it's and it's and it's also caregiving with dignity mm-hmm. right that I'm coming in as a vulnerable vulnerable person willing to learn who I am in this caregiving it, it strikes me that for the purpose of this conversation Maybe we also need to define not just grief, but also dignity. Yeah, so um, dignity, it is fundamentally a relationship of equality. So when we talk about dignity, we're often thinking about the recipient of something. That's how we typically think about dignity. So we're thinking about death with dignity. We're thinking about the dying person, right? The dying person has autonomy. The dying person can... can, um, you know, can make decisions for themselves, this sort of thing. That's great. What I'm doing with the word dignity is, is putting it, it's fundamentally a relational term. Right. That we can't have this, there cannot be a state of dignity for this person who's in relation with folks who are not also um, engaging that person from a dignified place. 
That's what I'm saying. So that's this mutual vulnerability, which allows for the re- what I'm calling the reciprocity of care. That in, I'm doing what? I love the, the, the German word for end-of-life care. It's called Sterbebegleitung, which literally means death accompaniment. Yeah, so I'm, that's what we're trying, that's what's happening with that movement is trying to regain this language, right? So I'm a companion, companion, one who breaks bread with, right? If we're going back to the origins of the hospice movement where that reciprocity was in, Cicely Saunders, um, who I write about in, in uh, the first part of the book as the, um, this um, Anglican um, training to become a nurse, then became a social worker, then became a doctor, right, who founded St. Christopher's, the first hospice in the 1960s. It was doing this transformative work in the 1950s, framing out the ethics and practices that would become what I'm calling, she didn't use the term, but, but what is contemplative end-of-life caregiving. She purposely took the, the hospice, um, H-O-S-P-E-S, the Latin root um, for, you know, that we see in hospitality, in hospital, and, but in hospic, hospice, um, because the word implies both guest and host, mm-hmm. right? So, so the founders, the early founders of the hospice movement understood that it was fundamentally a transformational place. And in fact, if we, we the caregiver, the helper, and I'm putting helper in air quotes here, do not enter this, this space willing to receive the gifts of those who are dying, then we are the ones who are diminished. So in, in my mind, there's, there's nothing that I'm saying here about the reciprocity of care that wasn't stated in the 1950s by this, this Christian doctor who founded the hospice movement, that in fact, um, it's often lost with the medicalization of dying and even with the, not just the medicalization of dying, but even with the professionalization of hospice itself, where it's, where it's now palliative care, where I am uh, um, tr- just trained in relieving suffering, but I'm not, am I trained, am I encouraged, am I supported to see where I am in that encounter with suffering, that I'm seeing myself as um, just um, happen at this moment in time I'm sitting in this chair rather than lying in that bed. What I'm wondering about, John, is how do we help bring this, these lessons into the everyday? And I know that your book covers this, and this is definitely the direction that your, a lot of your work is taking you. Um, I think maybe we need to plant some seeds before we fully get into that conversation. But it's the place where my mind is going already. It's that... Um, this is what we're missing in our society, in our culture right now. And I think one of, one of the beautiful aspects of your book is that it's calling this back into the ethics of this, back into, into conversation, that we really need to be thinking about, um, about this mutuality, about this reciprocity, about these relationships, about this dignity, about, um, about death in our life. So I'll jump in there with um, returning to to grief for a moment, um, and what I really want to highlight here is is um, is mystery, is having reverence. So, and this is I'll bring this into the into the reciprocity, into the dignity. Is really reverence, a sense of awe for for what is. Um, um, so, so for example when 
when I'm speaking about reciprocity, it's not just that, oh, I understand, oh, you, I mean, I have hear people say that, oh, I get more than I give. You know, I get, I get the, the, you know, I feel good about what I'm doing. That can be the case, right? That can be the case that this work gives me a sense of uplift, it inspires me rather than beats me down. It's not depressing, it's uplifting, that I feel good when I know I've helped someone. That's all great on that social level. But what I'm really getting at here with the reciprocity of care is really on a spiritual level that is beyond um, um, an, an, ex, an obvious exchange or a conscious exchange or a certainly not an instrumental exchange here. Um, and it may be that, that the person that I'm caring for is receiving something that I'm not aware of what they're receiving and I'm receiving something that's, that's my own journey that they don't know the gift that they're giving me. Okay, so I'd like to I'd tell one story from the book, and that I can you know speak um, that that and maybe speak some of, for myself as well. That that there was a you know you mentioned earlier of being you know descendants of of uh, of Holocaust survivors. Yes? yes. Well, there was a woman that I interviewed um, who in in Berlin, Germany, who um, describes. Um, Explained how how death was something that was taboo in her in her in, in her family, like just wasn't talked about, and in, and in particular, it was the death of her grandmother. And when her mother died, a friend of the family came and told her what happened to her grandmother. Um, that she was um, one of the many um, tens of thousands of um, physically or developmentally disabled persons that the Nazis. Um, tortured and experimented upon and murdered. And so in speaking about her draw to, to want to volunteer for hospice, um, around this time, this was in, uh, in 2003, I believe was the year, which was, the, was when for the first time the, the, the German government made available these federal archives where it was available to the public that one could, could if, if the paper still existed, could see what was done, what happened to their loved one. And so on the day that, that she received this in the mail, was able to read what happened to her grandmother, who was an artificially induced pneumonia and then essentially starved to death, is what the Nazis did with her, among other things. On that very day, she signed up to volunteer for hospice. And she described it this way, that the Nazis had um, had. Uh, you know, um, sent her um, in in the Geschichte. She had they'd sent you know my my grandmother to Kingdom Come, and she wanted to to enter this this uh, care for those who are dying to give them another kind of send off, and in her language, this was a etwas wiedergutmachen to make something right, and it was a spiritual process. There's no way. I mean, we're living in a time when currently in this, just, just this, just last week or the week before, talking about reparations with respect to um, slavery. So there is some way that we can, and I'm putting in air quotes, make right, right? We can take steps towards, we can, we can honor our desire to make something right that can't be righted in, in, some, in some sense, but we can. We can be on a path of making something right. And for her, this was a spiritual path that an in her family lineage, she was going to, to, these are her words, to, to spiritually make this right. And so 
clearly, so to bring back to the reciprocity of care, as she's at that bedside, no one she cares for knows. <laughs> and, and somehow they're linked. That's a gift that they're giving. That dying person is giving this woman this gift of helping to, in some spiritually symbolic way, heal this, this, this family trauma lineage. This is like a walking between worlds because we, we have here the, you know, the healer who brings their own wounds and every one of us that's walking on this earth brings our own wounds of some sort. There's no one I believe that escapes, escapes that. Um, and, and from the place where, where those wounds are, we're able to offer, offer healing. We're able to offer gifts. We all have that capacity within us to, to be driven by the very thing that creates some hurt or suffering, um, or wounding within us to then transmute that suffering into the capacity to share that reciprocity, that space, that healing with somebody else. Um, such a beautiful story. Thank you for sharing it. I'm also struck you early in your book, you talk about Tom. Um, and I'll let you share the story of Tom, but, and I shared this with you earlier. There's, there's one particular quote that you write about, um, where Tom is talking about his experience working in hospice. Um, and he says, this is where he ended and I needed to begin. And for me, that particular line, this is where he ended and I needed to begin. That, that frames such a balancing point of, of dignity, of reciprocity, of, of how to hold space and be present with another person, of what caregiving really is, right? That it's not um, doing for, it's being with, and it's, it's knowing when. Um, it's all of that discernment. And it's a delicate, fine line process. And it's attunement. And I think you know, in our daily lives, if this is part of where we're leading into this conversation, that attunement, that discernment, that being with, that caring, that's what a lot of us are struggling with in our relationships every day. Not when we're sitting with someone who's dying, but when we're sitting with the people that we're living with. So to try to bring it to the everyday life and through the story of Tom, um, I am, you know, Tom, this is uh, one of the opening stories in the introduction uh, where Tom is speaking about his very first patient he was caring for. Um, and what Tom really illustrates there is how caregiving can be, um, you know, what I'm calling contemplative caregiving or caregiving as spiritual practice. It's when the caregiving becomes um, a path of self-illumination. Mm -hmm. Right, and so this is, um, you know, whenever we're reach, reaching out towards, uh, you know, there, there is, I think anytime where we want to be of help to someone who's suffering, oh, there's a good impulse in there. You know, there is a nat, I mean, it is, it is a natural human impulse to, to want to relieve suffering yeah. and, and to not cause harm. This is, this is why there's so much military training 
you know, the, the aversion that we humans have to pulling a trigger, to taking someone's life. There's so much training to, to cut, to rewire the brain, to cut off those, those natural impulses to protect life, to not cause harm. And so there is this, I believe, this, this inherently good spark that leads us to, to want to reach out. And when, um, when I'm talking about this, this reciprocity, that our own healing is in part of that, that encounter, that there can be a darker side to that. And so, so there, there, there has to be, for this to be truly a dignified encounter, the caregiving needs to have some kind of um, uh, space for us to see ourselves in, that, in our caregiving, to illuminate who we are in our caregiving. Um, so I illustrate that I'm going to come to Tom, I'm coming to it this way. So um, in, in this chapter on caregiving and spiritual practice, I'm, I'm drawing on Akakura's Book of Tea, um, where um, um, is speaking of the, the, the doorway to entering the tea room. It's, it's only, I think, three feet high. So, you, so every person, no matter what their physical stature is or their social standing, the, 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 the social standing, you would, the samurai would take off his swords. Everyone would, would you know, remove their outer garments and enter the space, in bowing to enter the space. And so as I'm writing in the book that grief offers that same possibility that we all have to enter this doorway and we have to humble ourselves to receive the gifts of the grief. But also there's this purposeful, the garden path to the tea room is purposely meanders. It's not a straight path, right? And so that that path illustrates um, this path of self-illumination that meditation or other contemplative practices can offer. And so to... And so without that, our desire to help can become grasping and, and be quite destructive. And so what Tom illustrates, thank you for bringing it to Tom. So Tom describes, um, and, and he, like me, he and I were quite a lot alike, uh, you know, white guys of working class origin who didn't, you know, have any background in caregiving. And here he is, you know, on the, um, um, in, in this encounter with this, this man in the bed who, um, wanted a drink of water. And so this opening story, he's just talking about wanting to give this guy a drink of water. And, and you know, um, the gentleman's reaching down and, and is having physical difficulty getting the drink. And do I put the straw in? And it's in this, listening to Tom describe this back and forth, these micro adjustments of attunement, of, of knowing, uh, picking up the clues of the grunts, the guy couldn't speak if I remember correctly, but he's, he's send, letting Tom know, if Tom's attuning to it, can see, oh, that's it, where I'm just gently raising the cup up or gently helping him just touch the straw as little as possible to his lips. That space, that exploration, what Tom is doing there in that attunement, he's attuning to the gentleman on the bed, but he's also attuning to his own grasping to want to help. He's also attuning, he's getting in touch with the space between his impulse to help and what is actually helpful. What is actually, um, in, in Zen Buddhism we say, what's an appropriate response, right? That is the essence of Zen Buddhism is what's an appropriate response. And that requires that we illuminate ourselves, otherwise we're driven, I just wanna help. And that was Tom, I'm a bubbly guy, I'm a funny guy and I just wanna do for you. And he had to, to attune to the suffering out of him, but also the suffering in him, what was driving him to want to help so he could actually just offer an appropriate response to what was in front of him. Yeah, that, that's, thank you for that. that. That I think is such an important component of this because we, we don't 
often tune in to that appropriateness within ourselves. It's much easier um, as a human species, as people in relationships, for us to look outside of ourselves to see what's the matter and what's wrong. And it's not until we're struck with grief that um, we often notice what within us um, we can look at. And sometimes, sometimes it's that grasping. Often it is. Um, what I really appreciate about the way you're sharing the story of Tom is it's that, that moderating, that mediating, that internal desire. And I don't know how many people I can tell you that I've sat with here in my office who have shared with me stories about their partners or their parents or somebody in their life who just overwhelmed them with this intrusive capacity of, of caring too much. And I know that I have a tendency to do that. So um, this is definitely one of those places where one gets to bear witness to themselves and not just be with someone else, but bear witness to the self and the how, how am I tuning in? And that, that's a really powerful illustration. Thank you. So I'll come back to Tom and say more about him. But first, I just want to touch on what you're saying here of um, often uh, there are certain acts that become coded as, as care, symbolic acts. And um, for many of us, you know, food is... Um, an expression of care. This is certainly true in my in, in my life that I that that with my family, with my friends, with um, and for myself, of baking, of preparing meals, of, of food is, um, you know, an expression of 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 love, of of care. Um, and that is good. yeah, the, <laughs> you say that a little louder. <laughs> it's just saying that your bread is really good. I've gotten to eat some of it. <laughs> And so what, oft, what often happens um, at end of life, and not just at end of life, but it shows up there where someone just doesn't want to eat anymore. No. They can't eat anymore. And in, in fact, physiologically, eating actually causes the suffering. Like the body is naturally shutting down. And so I saw this with my, with my father who had pancreatic cancer where his wife um, couldn't, as the caregiver, and, she, and she's caring for him for sure, um, is caring for him, and yet um, her care is so driven by her own um, incapacity or inability or unwillingness or um, to acknowledge that he's exiting soon. It's a matter of, of weeks. Um, that, that just got to eat, just got to eat, just got to eat. And so if I can just get you to eat, you're going to live, and, I, you know, and I've done my job and whatnot. And so my father was, was nauseous. He was nauseous whether he ate or whether he didn't eat. And then if he ate, he was just more nauseous. And so I saw it, you know, briefly there. And it happens in, in you know, hearing family members in, in, in the context of hospice where, where you know, the, the, the wife is, has just cooked. This is just what she's done. You know, this is how, this is, it's, be, it's actually beautiful. It's beautiful. How many meals, <laughs> how much love did she express, you know, through the kitchen? It's so lovely. And so, so part of that attunement with Tom is, even what's and what's an appropriate response what's appropriate to today might not be tomorrow what's appropriate at this minute might not be the next minute so certainly relationships change and we can well, I'm going to go back a little bit more to Tom and then we'll get to the about relationship marriage and, and other kinds of parenting other kind of relationships where where 
Um, you know, am I the guy that Andrea married 16 years ago? You know, is she that woman? Well, yes and no. You know, and so there's impermanence in the relationship, in the in the space to allow allow the person to grow and and, and allow ourselves to apprehend who's in front of me right now. Who is this person? And so that's that's often where the gra- where end of life can really help illuminate that our own grasping to keep that person as the the person we know in this case the person who enjoys my meals, <laughs> you know, which which. Um, I'm going to come back to Tom because it does help us there, but I'll tell a story from about my mother-in-law. So Tula, when she was dying, um, she um, would get, she was less and less interested and able to eat. And I'm remembering one of our last meals together, which was absolutely a phenomenal meal. Um, you know, she went, the bedroom was upstairs, and so there were these steps coming downstairs, and then it's a classic of going from the table, eating at a table, right, to eating at a chair, to then eating in bed, right? I mean, or and, and just not just eating, but in terms of one's capacity for movement. So it, it came to a point where, where she wasn't coming down the stairs, so she was just living upstairs. And so there was a meal where I made, I believe it was grilled salmon and a salad and some brown rice, and um, and we're in bed, and she, um, I'm like Tula. This there was no need to eat this. I'm just offering it to you. And she just delighted in how beautiful it was. And I sat at the bedside and had a glass of wine. And and over two hours, she she ate a little bit, but she just little bites here and there. But it was just it was the enjoyment. We just enjoyed being in each other's presence and what it was. So food still, and there was it was still a gift there in a sense that it could be enjoyed but it didn't even have to be eaten it just had to be offered and so so our desire to 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 our 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 refusal to our difficulty in allowing someone to tell us who they are in that moment that's where a lot of the suffering comes from and a lot where the undignified care and in our own undignified being our own we can say maybe dignity another word could be integrity our own sense of integrity. So it strikes me that it's it's also just about staying attuned, right? That I I know you, but I don't just know what I knew of you then. I continue to learn you. I continue to know you. I continue to stay attuned to you and to myself and you to me and and all of those pieces. And I can come to know myself more fully. And so I'll come full circle in some sense back to the beginning of the conversation where I said it may seem like I you know, was an unlikely caregiver. Well, part of the, so in this book, I interview these hospice volunteers in, um, in several hospices in the United States and Germany. Um, so some volunteers are folks going into nursing homes, some are going into people, individual homes, some were a hospice house. Um, one hospice was... Um, an Alzheimer's wing of a, of, a, of a nursing home. One was an open ward um, on a hospital. And then one of the, um, the sets of interviews, the hospice, was at a prison. And so Tom was actually caring for, uh, the man he was caring for was an inmate in the prison. So he was in the prison infirmary. And um, not only was he at the, in that prison infirmary caring for this man as a, as a hospice volunteer he was also an inmate at the prison and so so uh so there was one way that tom and i didn't seem a lot alike that i had lost someone in my life to murder my mother 
and Tom had taken someone's life. Tom, about nine years, if I believe it is, before I met him, he had murdered a member of his family um, and was imprisoned. And here, Tom, just as I'm, I'm picking up on tying back to what you were just saying, Rebecca, about where if we're we're attuning to and coming to continue to know and come to know who is the person in front of us. What can have part of this compassion development central to it of this path of self-illumination is coming to know who am I in this caregiving and what Tom was discovering and what many of the men I interviewed at the prison were discovering and and folks on the outside is in, in many ways it had a it had a, a perhaps a a, a a more transformative tone to it, but to, was coming to apprehend apprehend their own humanity, that I actually have this capacity to care, that I actually have this capacity that there's a gap between an impulse and an action, um, or, and I'm able to see who's in front of me and what their needs really are. So if I if I jump, I'm going to jump ahead to later in the book where I'd write about. Um, a gentleman whose name I'm forgetting. There are all the names in the book are pseudonyms. Um, I'm forgetting the pseudonym at the moment. Um, well, he describes he was in prison um, because of a drug. He was he he was dealing drugs, and the drug deal went bad, and someone got got killed. And he's describing something similar to the time. He's got this gentleman in front of him who's presenting, really encouraging him. This the man he was caring for had dementia, and and he got to come to understand to see like that it's not the man it's the disease that's being presented here that, that he got to he got to see and really practice this sensibility that the behavior that's being presented to me um, is empty in the sense that the that it's not the person right. he's not personally responding to me in this way I'll, I'll leave the story is beautiful so I'll leave out the details so you can read it in the book but he's describing this seeing the space between his mind's reaction and 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 judgment of this man for what he's doing at the moment and understanding it's the disease it's not him it's the disease not him and so this process he came to see how reflecting on his own life this spilled out into the prison yard that when someone is in the prison yard is breaking bad and wants to get in a fight with him he's coming to see that his what is the suffering that's driving this person to want to engage with me in this way? And how can I respond to it in a way that protects myself but maintains my dignity as a caring human being? And describing how his relationships in the prison yard, not just as a hospice volunteer, but in the prison yard were being transformed and and other men in the prison who weren't involved in the hospice program were curious, became curious about hospice and curious about who he and other other men interviewed about, about who they were becoming that they had a certain power about them that was really a redefinition redef- of masculinity, and particularly in this hyper-masculine masculine space. But one of the things that this gentleman offered was he came to think back, when I was dealing drugs, all I didn't see a person there. I didn't see a father. I didn't see a brother. I didn't see a son. All I saw was dollar signs. And the mentality that this person's going to do drugs, or that I sell it to them, or someone else. And so this is where I, I see this really transformative potential of end-of-life care, that it can create in us these sensibilities that we can see, mm-hmm. not just beyond our own judgments, but we can see um, impacts we have on the world and a, and a real yearning in us to to see caring at every moment to see humanity and have dignified encounters with others at every moment and help create the conditions for others 
to experience those dignified encounters. So if I may, I continue for one moment there. So I'm I'm uh, I'm feeling some gratitude as I'm speaking here um, for Cicely Saunders and other founders who created this hospice movement. Who did what? They created a context for me to have transformative encounters with Jerome and others. Right. So that that's something I lift up in the book is that we often take for granted these spaces that we're in this you know we you know you'll 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 hear it's such a privilege to 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 you know volunteer for hospice well it is but not just in some i get to do nice things it's a privilege that this space was created <laughs> that i get to enter i don't it was created i get to to step in and transform my own life thank you thank i'm in a lineage of folks who created that for me and then i will just add to that and when we think about privilege we've got the flip side of privilege, which is deprivation. Right? And so that's something I'm, that I'm offering in this book of, if we can see how our own lives, where we have these, this privilege to care. I had the privilege to, to, to have certain experiences in my life because of, of college education and because of the generation I was built in to, even, and to, to be drawn to these practices to help transform my life. So if we see that, so where are the folks who have been deprived of the opportunities to care, the opportunities to be fully human, to apprehend their own humanity and to live a truly joyful life? How many of these men in prison have been imprisoned by very limited conceptions of, of masculinity and very limited possibilities for truly, truly um, understanding and feeling themselves as being compass the compassionate person that they are like the rest of us? I, I'm gonna go on an edge here and say probably almost every single one of the men in prison and go further than that and say that it's rampant throughout our society that these are things we don't um, provide spaces we don't provide spaces for for men and women for um especially for men and women of color, but, um, and indigenous peoples and native peoples, you know, that we, we only really provide spaces for cisgendered white, more men than women, but, but both. And, and in those privileged spaces, it has to be done a certain way. You know, we, we don't talk about things that are sad. We don't talk about grief. We, um, we don't really give death much space to learn from its lessons. And I think that is hurting all of us. It's hurting all of us that we're oppressed in these ways, that we're not, um, we're not talking enough. And I, I'm grateful for this conversation. I'm grateful for the opportunity to share this conversation with our listeners um, and to bring this conversation forward more. But I think that this is, this is a huge part of what this, the shift is, right? That as we care for one another, as we start this process of, um, looking at things like the caring that happens at end of life and what we can learn from it as we live our lives, we also start seeing more and more spaces where 
we all need tending and we all need care. And in many ways throughout our lives, some of us may have been more privileged and more cared for than others. Um, and yet we all still have the capacity to receive care and we all still have the capacity to care and to learn how to care. Something you and I have talked about in the past that feels like it fits really well right here. Um, is something I see in my practice, especially when I'm working with couples a lot. And it's, it's this edge of, it's so much easier for so many to go to contempt than it is to compassion. And that is true whether we're talking about outward contempt for others or inward contempt for the self or compassion towards others or compassion to the self. And it strikes me that compassion in many ways is the medicine here. And the struggle is helping people make the shift from one to the other. And I'm curious if you have any insight that you want to share around that. So there's many ways to respond. It's a great question. And so the, the first response that came up is is to use the word contempt, which is uh, in the, the um, family of anger, right? It's much more than anger, but it's in that family of anger. So I first just want to want to speak to um, to anger and grief. Yeah. And so not wanting to demonize anger. So that's the first thing I want to just offer that that um, when part of the cultural conversation around grief is grief means tears, grief means sadness, um, and to open that space up that we grieve in many different ways um, and at many different times, and that one can be sad and pissed off at the same time. <laughs> um, and in fact, there's a lot of power in the... Um, in some of those so-called darker emotions that come from grief, such as anger, which can can really be a um, the beginning point and actually part of a, a sustaining. Right, anger is just energy. Right, anger is a is there's a wisdom behind it that's seeing that something is off, and when when um, when understood and when one is truly inside of it can be a real force for good in one's individual life and in in changing oppressive structures. So that's the first thing I simply want to say is, is I know you spoke of contempt and I'll come to that, but I just want to say that of just lifting up the, the power of the, that anger can have and the and the sickness that can come when we when we try to bypass the fullness of our grief, which can most often includes anger. And so what I don't want the, this book and anything, any teaching offered to have anything to do with any kind of spiritual bypassing of trying to emotional bypassing, getting around emotions or using spiritual teachings or practices to get around our individual suffering or the structural spiritual bypassing to try to get around collective suffering. So that's just a beginning uh, statement there. Um, I guess when it comes to contempt, I mean, contempt, if, um, you know, what I, my understanding of contempt is that it's the, there is this, um, well, what's an emotion? Well, there, well, I guess there's some sensation in the body, right? So I've got some sense of irritation or something's not right, and maybe I feel it in my throat, my stomach somewhere. And then, um, you know, the, the anger is I'm, I'm upset about this. I'm not happy about this. There's a dissatisfaction. I don't want this. I don't want this. And then I suppose it's anger is beyond irritation. Anger is it should, maybe it shouldn't be happening. 
right? It isn't right, so I want to write this. And then contempt, my understanding is we're then adding on top of that a story, a story about what this person is doing to me. So I'm harboring, I'm, 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 I'm imagining their motivations, I'm imputing upon them motivations. I am, you know, stories of what they always do, all this. And so... Um, yeah, projections there. Um, and so your question then of how, if you're working with couples, how to support folks in making this working, I mean, the starting point is seeing the contempt and seeing the components of it, seeing what they are doing, much no different than what Tom is doing when he's seeing his own aggression and wanting to help. Right, it, it, the 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 source of the contempt. You might have a, a real beef, you know, there, uh, or you know, a real. The, what you're upset about is, is that there's something, there's an outcome that is actually harmful, maybe to the kids or something like that, and that's real, and yet you're going into this place of contempt that actually undermines your capacity to to get the good that you want. And so, what what the 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 book offers. Right, so analysis of these experiences of folks at end of life, that, um, well, what are the components of compassion? I could just offer those out, right? Because you're asking of that shift from, from contempt to compassion. How I can offer them out, and then I can pull out uh, one or two of them that relate directly to this and offer a story. Well, there's um, there's intention, right? So compassion, we have a, an intention to want to relieve suffering. There's some moment to moment awareness or mindfulness, as it's often called, of I'm aware of what's going on in this moment. If I'm not, how could I possibly respond skillfully to it? Um, another component being empathy, that I feel it's not, I'm not just doing something, but I, but I have a felt uh, sense of connection to this person, and so that person can feel um, and, and know that, they are, that my action is skillful. They can feel that 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 sense of, of empathy and then the often's component of extending it out to compassion even to those that irritate us or you know that that we think we don't like and so in this case someone that we have contempt for okay so it can be possible so I'm thinking of many many stories in the in the book places where a couple different places where folks are describing um, practices they're engaged in that help them cultivate these these capacities that relate to what you're talking about and one is simply um well there's a fundamental principle of hospice care and that is that that uh you know no matter whoever shows up in the bed we offer them you know this dignified care and central to understanding what the volunteer does is that quote we listen without judgment Mm. okay so that's an that's a kind of ethical imperative right so that's this other component of compassion is the ethical or heritage or lineage so that's what you're bringing to this work yes that's what i'm bringing that's what i'm that's a contribution that i'm making is pointing out this 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 heritage um that's often lost in discussions of mindfulness or lost in discussions of compassion or lost in discussion of caregiving that we are that we're always working within some ethical framework um that we can have gratitude for or to help lift up and keep reminding ourselves and those around us this is the water we're swimming and this is the water you know and and shaping the water you know helping to shape that movement expand that movement um but the listening without judgment that's to have that ethical imperative to begin with attunes one to well am i seeing when my judgments are coming right so 
Um, so there's many stories I could tell of folks coming to see that. There's also a, a you know a practice that I you know that I offer here uh, in in the book around this. Um, I'll just sort of hint at what the practice is in in, but it's the the, the question really is, my God, what is this person going through in this moment? Mm-hmm. Okay, so the story, which is such, which is such a central question throughout our lives for us to be asking to ourselves to the people in our lives. And and when and we can get stuck in that. It's easier for me to be asking when I'm as a chaplain. So right now I'm working as a chaplain as a hospital. I'm on the oncology ward. I'm in the emergency room right now. Uh, last year I was on the on the intensive care unit where the suffering is tremendous. And and I am coming in with, with clear intentionality. I'm coming in grounded and have practices throughout the day to continually reground myself when, I, when, when I'm in the presence of deep suffering and I'm recharging myself and, and, and refocusing. And, and, and actually, when I'm in the encounter, I practice in that while I'm with, in the room with someone for regrounding myself. Well, that's in some sense easier than um, interacting with my wife as we're getting our kids off the, the daughter off the school where it's easier in those moments where the suffering doesn't seem quite, I mean, if you think about it, right? No one's in extreme pain. You know, no, no one is just praying, please, please, you know, in, in, in unrelenting pain, or no one is worried that of, of whether their loved one is gonna make it another day, you know? And so, but in these moments, it's, it's easy for the, to slip from the, the and to, to lose, I'm um, get stuck in my own irritation and lose the sight of what is this person going through? How can I skillfully respond to that? So, so in the book, offering st- inspiring stories that point to, that illustrate practices that we can then apply to other spaces of our life. And so here's a story of a gentleman, he, uh, Manuel, um, in Los Angeles on an Alzheimer's wing of a nursing home, so Mexican-American. And his um, offered that his mother had, had, uh, um, had Alzheimer's and they were caring for her in the home and he's describing, he's saying, hey, John, you, I, don't know if you, I don't know if you understand about Hispanic families, but we, you know, but we, uh, you know, we, we don't put our parents into homes. We care for them in our in our, in our homes, and this is um, and describe this terrible, terrible suffering he experienced when when his mother had a fall, and the doctor said she needs twenty four hour care, and he's describing this um, uh, the language. It's poetic and it's and it's and it's it's you know in, in its terror of what he's saying, right? The suffering of his for him and his wife to make this decision to put his mother in a nursing home. And he would visit her every day as, as much as he could. But there were some days he's, you know, when he wasn't able to. And in, in his mind, her, she quickly declined after going into the nursing home. And he carried the sense of, the sense of guilt around that, which was a motivation to, vol- not just driven, but, a, but a, what he described as a powerful energy that sustained him as he's volunteering in this, in this um, Alzheimer's wing of this hospital. Without that motivation to be doing this in honor of his mother, he would um, he would drown in a sea of emotional suffering. So he was highly attuned to the suffering around him, and he's describing the story of, of there was this family where the family was fighting in front of the mother or the whoever was in the bed. They're fighting, and he's just thinking to himself, he's getting angry, and he's really can't you see you're upsetting 
you know, you, you're, you're upsetting your mom here. Um, and it's just enough. There's a, this listening without judgment, that ethical imperative connected with his own, his own empathy, connected to his own story that of not knowing of how might people have judged him for putting his mother into this nursing home. And my God, did people have any idea of what I was going through, you know, in, in doing my best. And this was something that he just would remind himself, you know, my God, and others describe, what is this person going through this moment? So he's saying, can I have the thought? Yes, of course. So he's not pretending like he's not um, having this thought of what the hell are you doing? This isn't helping. You know, and he's not pretending that doesn't even feel angry, but there's this space of uh, he, what creates the, the contemplative space is this question, my God, what are these folks going through at this moment? And so there's a practice I offer in the book, a three-part practice where we can um, investigate, um, um, where we can develop this capacity yeah. to, to sort of see the behavior, right? There's this behavior that that is going on right now. <laughs> there is um, what I can know about it, right? Or, or, or what an observer observer would know about it. So it's imagining, you know, that the, the contemplation is something like this: that you, you know, take a moment of your of your caregiving, where you you feel like you weren't your best at your care. And I, I mean, I could think of you know an interaction several this week of relating to my daughter, relating to my wife, relating to someone in the hospital yesterday, or to a colleague um, that I. Uh, you know, wasn't that wasn't my best moment? So you, you you describe that as as if it's there's a film. You know, there's a video back in the days when there were video cameras, right? There's a video being made of this, and so there's just this objective, if we will, just you know, just depiction. So just describe what someone would see in that video, right. okay? And then the next part of the contemplation is to imagine what someone might think about that person, right? So what imagine someone might, seeing you relating that way, what, what they might think, right? Oh, what, a, what a jerk, you know, what an aggressive person trying to force food down that person or, or wow, they're fighting in front of the family or whatever it might be. So imagine the judgments, like get real about what, what they might see. And, and, and in terms of contemplating our own care, we're often our harshest judge. Yeah. And so we don't, might not have to stretch that. We can see, hear the voices in our head judging us. And then the third part of the contemplation is taking on this, this role of the compassionate witness, with, with putting into practice this hospice principle of listening without judgment. So what really is going on with the fullness of someone who's watching that video wouldn't know that's going on inside of me. So, so that someone wouldn't know with, with Manuel and putting his grandmother in the nursing home doesn't know the, the situations of their finances, of her need for care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't even know his own suffering of doing that. And so if we were to take that, that practice and apply it to you know, the breakfast time, you know, the getting the kids off the school, these irritating moments that can arise, these, these stupid in some you know, cosmic sense, but... but let's not bypass them. They're real in the sense of this is where the relationships are in these daily moments. You know, how, you know, can I, so not, I can train myself to more and more um, have this gap between my immediate sense of irritation that I'm being wronged by my spouse or my child or my colleague and to just have some little space where I can, can see beyond the video and the tapes that are playing in my head. It's, I use a very similar exercise with, in relationship with people, 
where I ask them to kind of have that same kind of video camera objective experience and then to talk to the person that they're in relationship with where they're struggling around the stories that are in their head, things that they're making up. What you're asking for here is not to go into the stories that are in their heads, but the stories that they're imagining in someone else's head, the stories that they're imagining other people would perceive about their behaviors, their, their actions. And then from there, be a gentle, be a gentle witness to, um, can you talk more about that piece a little bit? Because I, I'm just, I'm getting stuck there a little bit and I want to make sure that it's clear for our listeners. Well, I was describing the contemplation of the book was, was, um, I think I named the contemplation loving our imperfect care. Yes. Okay. And so, um, so you're, I think your confusion here may be that I'm describing a practice and that I'm adapting it to this conversation here. So I'll just, just say for the, for the book, the, the, a lot of times, so none of us are, are, are caring under perfect conditions. That's just, that's part, and, and some are more privileged than others. So in, in writing this book, I'm naming the privilege. I, I developed this more in the final chapter of the book of naming the privilege of, as a hospice volunteer, um, I'm not under time constraints. Right, so I'm, I'm now no longer volunteering for hospice. You know, I did for many years and I interviewed folk, but that's the, the empirical basis of the book. That's, those are the interviews. Now I'm working as a chaplain at a hospital where there's also nurses who are, they're caring for the same patients I am. I have more time as a chaplain than they do, right? As a hospice volunteer, it would often be that the, 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 the aides, the, the certified nursing assistants would express when I was volunteering at a hospice house they'd be carrying right along with me. And many of them would, I had some wonderful connections where they'd say, John, I well, a couple of women would say, John, I really think you should go into this room here. They knew the need was great and, and, and they didn't have the time. And that, that, that was actually a sense of suffering for them, that they didn't have the time to, to, to uh, as much time as they would have liked the conditions of their care of, of, of just the overwork in the healthcare industry right now. And I use that word, I use that word industry purposefully that that the it says something about the grief the 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 sickness of our society when when a healthcare system is sickening to healthcare workers mm-hmm. and we just if we just take that in and that's that's kind of what I'm that is uh, what I'm getting to at the end of the book of what I'm calling radical compassion is you know the book what we're talking about now and what the book really focuses on is this, this one-on-one encounter but how can we take these same principles and then try to change the structures that can create the spaces to have more healthy encounters, that they can have, invite more and more people to engage caregiving as spiritual practice. It's sort of like, if I digress for a moment to the, to the, you know, to the, to the Buddhist understanding of, of uh, the, the six realms, you know, that there's the human realm is the, there's, you know, the, 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 the animal, the hell realms, and the animal realms where there's so much suffering that, that one doesn't turn around. There's so much suffering and aggression that one is lost in the suffering and the aggression and doesn't have an interest in a desire to wake up. And then there's, on the other end of the spectrum, is the godly realm where there's just so much pleasure and bliss that there's, there's no motivation to wake up. You can drown yourself in, in, in delusionous pleasure. In the human realm, you know, in, in the Buddhist uh, cosmology, is there's just the right balance of, of, of suffering and freedom from suffering that can create a space that one wants to turn around, that wants to wake up. And that's the preciousness of this 
of this human life that we have. And so, so to a that there's just enough. That's the preciousness. That's the precious. So it's not. So there's no glorification of suffering. It's nothing like this, and yet, and and so what I'm what I'm pointing to at the end of the book is acknowledging the privilege of the people, myself, and the people I've interviewed, mm-hmm. to approach caregiving as a spiritual practice. Well, there as a volunteer for hospice, there's a whole lot more space available to do that than as a nursing assistant, or as or as a nurse, or as an ICU doctor or even as a chaplain uh, to be honest um, or as a so so how can we help create the conditions so that this privilege yeah. is expanded out and so um this you know we, we we were talking earlier about this work that you're doing you you wrote this book you're you're acting as a chaplain and you're starting to give more and more talks these days you're traveling and um you have a upcoming talk on healing healing justice and it strikes me that this is a really easy migration into into this work because this is exactly what you're talking about here you're talking about um what we can learn from end of life care and you know how we can look at things like the healthcare industry um and how it's sickening its workers and um you know, probably we can go much further into prison systems and how um, are are they really offering rehabilitation? Are you know what what are they all about? Um, I've had enough interactions with people who work in the prison system that um, I could probably say that a lot of them are hurting just as much as healthcare workers are, right? So I'll point to, uh, appreciate the question, I'll point to two dimensions of my work now. So, it, um, uh, so yes, I'm a writer and I'm working on, an, on, on, on another book now. Um, but two dimensions of my writing that, that come out of this work, that this contemplative caregiving um, book that I just, just published by Shambhala in, uh, in April um, is the groundwork, it presents a framework for these these two different strands of work and I would and think it's the same work it's just on different levels yeah. and so one is on an individual um, level and then there's the organizational and and macro societal level and so to to complete the thought about the loving our imperfect care that's on this individual level that my my work I I I offer bereavement support so so spirit so this is not therapeutic in some diagnostic sense of I'm going to help someone do their grief work and um, it is spiritual support that I'm offering as a spiritual guide through difficult times. So having clients who um, the desire is to turn towards their suffering and to to have it be a, um, a, a open up, up as a, this is the, the ground for my spiritual practice. Right. So supporting folks in, in discovering what that spiritual practice is for them, helping guide them in connecting whatever their existing practice is with the grief, that's, that's that work. And then similar to that is what I'm calling caregiving coaching. Um, so I'm thinking of um, you know, a client where there is, it is, it, it, and, it's, and central to that is loving our imperfect care. <laughs> right that that uh, um, of and when you say when you say loving our imperfect care you, you're talking in many ways about caring for ourselves you're talking about being gentle and compassionate towards the self and and 
not beating oneself up for the places that we might have missed. Yeah, so in an earlier, in early section of the book, I'm talking about self-care there, and I'm drawing back on, so I'm drawing on Buddhist and ancient Christian sources and ancient Greek sources here. Um, you know, we got to, what do we mean by care? and what, what do we mean by the self? And so I'm, so, and I'm responding to a, a, a you know, a view of self, self-care today as sort of like this cycle of um I care and then I get depleted and then I do things like take a hot bath, you know, or, you know, go get a massage and then I care again and I get depleted and then I, you know, go on a, you know, a walk or something. And so the cycle of depletion, rejuvenation, depletion, rejuvenation, that can often be a downward spiral if the coping mechanisms, you know, in, in, in aren't healthy, it can quickly move to a downward spiral towards burnout. Um, and even if it doesn't lead towards burnout, that's that cycle where the caregiving itself isn't the place where the self-care takes place then it's it's you may be surviving but the transformation that i'm speaking about here of the of that is possible is is lost there and so i'm speaking about the 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 care of this the care of the self where i am there's a path the caregiving is a path for, for of self illumination. That's what I'm talking about. So when I'm speaking of loving our imperfect care, that is um, the 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 um, the data, the ground, the material that I'm working with is seeing my own mind and heart as I'm caring and and witnessing my own grasping, my own you know the just the example of 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 um, um, of hearing myself say something. There are times when I may say something that's that's you know uh, <laughs> um, not helpful or not knowing what to say. I was with a gentleman yesterday in most horrific pain. Nothing I could, nothing I could say, you know. And so my care was imperfect. I could not take away. I couldn't take away his pain. And my and I, I had to go home at some point. So I could say, oh, I'm just being with him, which was of some degree of comfort. It was, but I'm just one jewel in the net of care there uh, in, in his care and and i have to step out at some I, in that case i literally my day i had to go home at some point and so so the loving on perfect care this is, is is a metaphor i'm using for um for some degree of of self-acceptance yes but also central to skillful care is seeing the conditions of our care but where nurses are have so many patients they're they're required to see, it may be that limiting limiting in some sense the amount of care, accepting that I can't be the everything to this patient because I have to give to all these other people is actually skillful. Yes. It's actually skillful. And I if that's myself in that in that caregiving, there's gotta be some investigation of my own wanting to give and some investigation of not just my own limits but the structural limits within within which I'm working so that I'm not harming myself and and and, and then in, in undermining my capacity to, to care. And, and if I can't sustain my own joy in what I'm doing as a parent, right, I'll end up resenting my kids because I'm given too much, right, which means I'm not given at all. <laughs> There's no gift there if, I'm, if it's leading to resentment. So that's the one side of the of the work to come back to your question of this individual um, level, and then this other work you're talking that you mentioned with the healing justice. This is work of talks and um, and workshops of trying to support organizations um, in in yes. 
supporting their individual workers if they're in suffering, but having it be upstream. So it's not just like a creating a culture, creating cultural change. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, many, there are hospitals today. Um, I talk about one of them in, in, in one part of the book where they have like a physician's health and well-being program. And essentially it was in its, I believe, second or third year of its existence. And essentially what it was is that doctors at the hospital could make an anonymous call to this line if they were like, you know, struggling. And then they could get counseling or, you know, whatever it might be, meditation or, or yoga or, or something like this. Well, that's a down, that's great, but it's also a downstream thing, right? Mm-hmm. That that's the, the, the trauma or the suffering's already there. How can we help create the conditions that doctors don't need to use the hotline? And that, that's, so that's the cultural change where we're, where we're naming, we're putting a language to it that the, and naming these conditions are sickening. I mean, if we're just any social movement, you know, it, it's, it, it, it's if you, when you can name the problem, you know, you know, the problem that has no name. Well, you give it a name and then we work with it, you know. And so try, so that work of trying to work in healthcare and to, to name the sickness in a way that, that I'm working on the inside to uh, finding folks in healthcare organizations who, who can be conversation partners and how can we help shift that? This is a slow process. And then... And it, it strikes me that it's also one where you're systematically relieving the individual workers, the individuals of having to carry the burden because you're creating a, a larger conversation that isn't just, this is what you can do to take care of yourself better. But it's the, this is what, as a society, as a culture, as an organization, as an institution, we can do to take care of the whole of us better. It's, it's a whole system approach. So when we're talking about, about culture, um, and um, when I'm saying seeing the conditions of our care, yeah. um, so I'll jump in here with the language of mindfulness, that, that mindfulness in contemporary um, uh, white Western American culture is this individual practice, uh-huh. right? So, so taking practices from it's the you know the the, the pedigree is is uh, Eastern is is Buddhist, and in and implementing it in uh, white spaces that are um, individual individualizing the practice, so divorcing from an ethical framework, so yeah. it can be easily part of a consumer culture but also individualizing problems. So if I digress just for a moment, I was having some exchange on Facebook with some old friend about, um, about climate crisis. And it was like, the, re- the response was, what, what are you doing about it? And um, well, it's a, it's a great question, but the more important question is, what are we doing about it, right? So, yeah, I, I as an individual, I can, you know, I can write a paper on climate change denial, and and I can, um, you know, uh, recycle, which which is uh, like putting a bandaid on gangrene. I'm forgetting the woman's name who who I'm taking this quote from. So, when we're speaking of mindfulness in terms of cultural practice, right? So, I'm gonna I'm gonna move up to structural stuff in a minute here, but mindfulness of of, of cultural practice. This is is an awareness where I can see how I am being shaped on a daily basis in these little ways. And the burnout comes when I'm not attuned to how I'm being shaped and I'm just going along and the next thing I know I've become someone I don't want to be. 
right? So can I see the sickening agents? I can see I'm being shaped and then find others, find resources within myself. Um, How can I talk back and help reshape, help protect, um, or help, it might be help introduce, whatever it might be, but at a cultural level, seeing that this is a cultural, so in, in, um, it might simply be the, the language that's being used. So for example, um, it makes sense in the field of nursing that one uses the language of a, of a baseline, right? And maybe in, in therapy, that's you, someone comes in, this is their baseline, right? So, so in, I was, I tell a story at the, at the, um, in one of the final chapters of the book where I was completing, I was in my clinical training, I trained as a, as a, as a, a CNA, as a certified nursing assistant, um, the other year. And I did it, um, I may work as a CNA at some point in my life. Uh, I may want to have that experience. Um, and I did it also that, that I just wrote a book on, you know, on hospice volunteering, these conditions that are, that are so privileged. And here are these workers who are doing such dignified work under such undignified conditions. And part of the undignified conditions is living in a society that doesn't value the, the care. Yeah. But I just tell a story of a, of a, of a, of a woman who was struggling for breath in, in a room. And I'm sitting at the nurse's station with, with some of my CNAs who, who were training me. And, and the woman is gasping. And I'm just realizing that I'm, it's, it's kind of, it's a scary sound. She's gasping for breath. And I just, I'm sitting there and realizing that I'm, this is tough. And I just said, I'm, you know, I just mentioned it, you know, to the, to the folks next to me. And I was, oh, that's her baseline. And what that meant, what I was told is there's what, what that phrase, that was a euphemism for, there's nothing we can do about it. We can manage her symptoms or we can treat these other acute things, but we, there's nothing we can do about that chronic condition. And so w- medically there was nothing that could be done. So in that moment, what did I do? In that moment, there was a, a space enough where I realized I feel powerless here and it's frightening to me. I'm going to turn towards the fear and I went into the room. So I'll leave the story out for those who want to read the book and, <laughs> and see what can be possible when we face our powerlessness. But I'm just using it as an example of there's a language central to culture is language and there can be, can be uh, a language that invites us to turn away from suffering. And so can we see that how we're being trained and how can we, sure. yeah, and how can we help shape the language to turn back? So that's on a cultural level. So on a structural level, it can also be about language as well. And so I'm going to come to the, when you speak about prisons and you, you raise the question, are prisons rehabilitating? And I could approach that as a, at the level of language. And that is that, well, what does it mean to, to rehabilitate? You know, well, what does habilitate mean? Um, it, it, the, the, the root of this term is uh, to embody Right, so I'm, I am, I am, um, I'm in my body. I habitate, right? There's a habitat, right? So I am embodied. I am whole in that sense. I'm in my body, and so rehabilitate means, oh, someone was once in their body, now they're not. We're going to get them back in, or someone was once whole, now they're not. We're going to help them become whole again. And that language might make sense if we're talking about, you know, someone is, is in a traumatic accident, and you know, we're trying to help them with physical therapy or occupational therapy or speech therapy to as much as possible regain movement to re you know literally to to rehabilitate their arm right to get those those um those neurons fire you know re amazing with the rewiring so they can actually get movement in their arm again or walk again 
But when it comes to um, the spirit, um, which I I see the human warehousing, which is what the so-called criminal justice says, human warehousing. I see it as a spiritual, a spiritual crisis of our society that has multiple dimensions. Every, every sickness of our society can be seen there, the racism, the sexism, and classism. It's, it all comes together, right, merges there. And so, it's, and so when it all comes together, well, that's the spirit of the time. That's the spiritual sickness there, which then creates tremendous opportunity for transformation, if we can trans, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so, but rehabilitation. So, what does it mean to be embodied? Well, for me, that's the, that. You know, what does it mean to rehabilitate? Well, that posed the question: of What does it fundamentally mean to be human? And my exploration in this book on contemplative caregiving is that to care is what makes us fundamentally human. And I don't mean that to be to be a good person or to be a caring person. I mean to be on a path where I understand that illuminating myself and connecting with my own suffering um, is connected up with addressing and connecting with um, the suffering of another and that touching on the suffering of another and having a desire to be a part of that healing is part of my own healing. That's what I mean about being fully human. That's what I mean by contemplative caregiving in essence. And so... And so um, we know that if one was abused as a child, yeah. you know that, that these experiences of deprivation, um, of being abused as a child or neglected, etc., uh, sexual violence, re- make it more likely that someone is going to be an abuser, right, or neglect in later in, 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 when they're an adult. So, the flip side of that is also true. This is the, this is what we often take for granted is that the experiences of habitating ourselves, of, of not just being cared for, but, that, caring. but of caring, that reciprocity of care where these experiences of being able to, to see how my own journey is tied up with, with the suffering of your journey, right? Which is through caring relationships that that takes place, that that likewise begets later in life. There's research on this, research on, on compassion, right? That, that these early experiences shape these later experiences, and they also can be later in life as well, as it was for me in my, 20, in my teens and 20s and beyond. And so I you know, can pose the question, how many of these men and women in prison, right? I was posing the question around these men that I interviewed um, who have you know, taken lives into other heinous things, like here they're being exposed. They're not being rehabilitated in this hospice program. They're being offered an opportunity to, to, care. to care and to, to apprehend their own humanity, which in their own words, they hadn't before. And so it's sort of like take that upstream, you know, like, so this, I'm talking here about redefining masculinity. I'm talking about creating spaces for, to affirm um, the manliness, you know, the, the humanness <laughs> of, uh, of walking through that encounter with Jerome, of not knowing, of, of, of not knowing. Re-encountering an experience of not knowing is such, and that, that is part of being human. That is part of inhabiting our bodies is sitting in the suffering there of not knowing and being able to tend to ourselves and the folks around us, the world around us. John, I'm I'm struck by so many different directions um, that we have tended to here today. And 
so many more directions that I want to jump into and yet also aware of, um, of the time that we've already taken and want to give our listeners a chance to absorb all of this. So maybe right now would be a great time for us to let our listeners know where you can be found, where they can find your work and your book and um, learn more about you. Great. So thank you, Rebecca, for the, for the talk, for the conversation. And thanks, everyone, for listening. And so the book we've been talking about is called Contemplative Caregiving, Finding Healing, Compassion, and Spiritual Growth Through End-of-Life Care. So it's published by Shambhala, April 16, 2019. So you can order that directly from Shambhala um, or other bookstores near you. Um, and you can find out more about my work um, at www.johnericbauer.com. So all one word, J-O-H-N-E-R-I-C-B-A-U-G-H-E-R.com, where I talk about the, the ethics behind my work, um, that inspires my work, where I talk about this book and two other books that I've, that I've worked on, um, and then some of the, my offerings, both the, the compassion and correction, so prison work, um, the coaching, uh, bereavement support, um, workshops, etc. And part of my uh, work as, uh, in terms of bereavement support is a collaboration with my wife, Andrea Mortello, who um, is a relational life counselor, couples counselor, and also a somatic experiencing um, and therapist, you know, so a, a trauma therapist. And um, through our conversations and, and through the work that we've been have done and are doing in our relationships come to understand that so much of the suffering and miscommunication and uh, the possibilities for contempt <laughs> of destroying relationship and, and then of not mining that relationship for the fullness it can offer, um, part of what's missing there is seeing or what can really support the flip side of that, of really mining a relationship for, for, the, for, for all of its beauty and possibility is seeing that that relationship is fundamentally grief-ridden. Yeah. That this is impermanence is, is uh, not just, you know, to b- go back to your, one of your original questions of applying this to everyday life, that impermanence is not just end of life, but throughout, I, I think perhaps many people uncouple or divorce because they can't imagine being who they want to be or who they feel themselves becoming in what in the trap of their relationship somehow their relationship they can't allow their relationship the space the grief to be in that relationship and so this is work that andre and i are, are putting together a workshop on on uh couples in grief so not so we're not just individualizing grief but seeing how how good things positive things in in a in a in a in someone's life, and and it could be actually be positive for both. A new job, you know, a new a new whatever it might be, a new baby, whatever, um, can also bring a quality of grief that often goes unnamed. Yes. And so that's the work that that she and I will be doing together, and and offering to couples is a, a grief workshop that is can have the uh, therapeutic elements, but it's really for couples who want to spiritually grow and use a language of of grief as a as a to explore that as a metaphor uh, as a framework for uh, growing together oh that is just so incredibly beautiful i'm really excited to talk to both of you and hear more about that i i think that this is one of those spaces where 
we're so uncomfortable as a culture. We're uncomfortable talking about grief. We're uncomfortable sitting in that stuff. And so when it shows up and it shows up everywhere and it's pervasive, we want to run away instead of staying present and learning and building resiliency. And, you know, we, we talk about things like post-traumatic, post-traumatic syndrome. We don't talk often enough about post-traumatic growth, that there's that resiliency. There's, there's not just trauma that comes out of grief. There's also growth and spiritual spirituality and more discovery. And that I think is what your work is so beautifully illustrating. And I am so excited to see how you take this into the relational sphere with your wife, with Andrea. Thank you for doing that work. And I would say one more thing about that, that oftentimes to come back to your question about contempt, Mm -hmm. that what I, what I hear um, and, and understand about contempt is that we're, that we're taking some behavior um, and we're really essentializing. This is about the essence of this, what this person is doing here. Some, something like that. And so we're in, so there's a fundamentally individualizing and dehumanizing this person that's doing this. And it may be that someone in fact is doing something that they need to stop doing, you know, to have a health for them to be healthy and for the relation to be healthy. That may be true, but there's this individualizing the behavior. It starts with them and it stops with them. And so part of the, 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 the power that, that Andre and I understand of using this language of grief is that grief, again, it's about relationship, mm-hmm. right? So grief is a response to a broken bond. And so in using a language of grief to help couples explore um, those places between them where there's brokenness so the, and see where the contempt resides in that space between them, in that brokenness, and how that can be, can be explored and and healed in a way that is um, allowing for the two of them and then to to trust their own integrity and then the integrity of of the of the space between them of their relationship and so it is so it is true that we often run from grief but one perhaps even more profoundly way we run from grief is that we don't even apprehend it as grief because we've coding grief as something that has to do with death and that there are these deaths or losses or simply uh, even the language of loss is somewhat tricky because I would just say broken bonds because there's also the possibility for gain in there this sort of thing so but broken bonds throughout our, our daily lives it's certainly in relationship I'm so struck right now by language and how language shapes so much of how we experience the world and each other and relationships. And I love this conversation of broken bonds and, and looking at grief in a new way and perhaps even mining it for, for wisdom and for more knowledge, um, more knowledge of, of how we're experiencing the world, not necessarily knowledge of what is, because how do we ever know that? But to look at things differently, instead of um, instead of things dying or things ending, which is which is very much often what it's the it's the natural cycle. But instead of just only looking at that at it that way, and instead of being scared of it, to also see where it holds space for for something richer for something that we haven't already deepened our awareness of 
Thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you share with the world and um, for this conversation. I'm really looking forward to sharing this interview, this conversation with our listeners. And um, there will be a link to find your work in our show notes. So folks can just click on that too. Thank you, John. And I've got a few announcements of my own. I'm currently forming a Wisdom Within process group, which is exploring the inner lives of women. We're going to begin in September 2019 in person in my New Paltz, New York office. We'll be focusing on alignment with one's deepest self, transforming fear and limiting beliefs into helpful guides, fostering supportive relationships, and developing intuition. Learn more and apply to join us at connectfulness.com slash wisdom within. I also wanted to let you know a little bit more about how you can work with me. I maintain my relationship therapy practice in New York, and I also run intensive couples retreat experiences. You can learn more about both at connectfulness.com. You can also join my connectfulness community. It's a virtual community and it's totally free. That's at connectfulness.com slash community. And if you're a therapist in private practice, then check out the Connectfulness Collective. Come root in with us over at connectfulness.com slash collective. Therapists, it's time to integrate all the stuff that you have to do into your business so that you can focus on what you do best and Therapy Notes can help. It's a simple, secure EHR platform that helps therapists in private practice to manage notes, claims, schedules, share documents, and request signatures. They also offer great unlimited customer support whenever you need it. Over 60,000 mental health professionals trust Therapy Notes. Get two months free by going to therapynotes.com, creating an account, and using the promo code CONNECTFULNESS. A few extra little gratitudes. I'd like to thank Christy Hausler, my behind-the-scenes amazing podcasting team, Sarah and Chris Farris at Kidney Stone Studio for the delicious soundtrack music, Blue Rabbit Studios for the cover art, and please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcasting platform. Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com events.